Spots, Critical Foundation and Wandering Towers. This is Staying In. Chris, what is the, what's the, I don't want to say scientific, maybe it is scientific, but what is the proper brainy box version or word you use to describe when something in a video game starts to affect your real life or you, or you, you're doing something in real life and you imagine yourself in the, in the video game. Like, so the other day I was in York and we were walking along the walls of York and I was like, oh, this would make a great setting for like an Assassin's Creed DLC. Like I can see myself yeah. jumping from yeah. rooftop to rooftop. Like what, what is there an, a, a proper term for? The term I believe is called game transfer where the gaming world leeches into your everyday life. So as well as having some of the game transfer in York, I also had mm. some game transfer the other day but it was whilst power washing my uh, patio. Yes, here we go. Here we <laughs> yeah. go. Here we go. The gift that keeps on giving. The, the, oh my goodness. Not since Tony Hawk's have I, have I wanted to take on an extreme sport. Are we calling it that? Power washing? I, I mean, you get pretty wet and wild. So Right. Oh. So I was jet washing my uh, patio. Uh, I pre-treated it first with some pre-wash and a brush. Good lad. Yeah. And then jetted it with some water at high velocity. But where the game transfer comes in is I was doing it. My wife came out to, to check on me. <laughs> and, you know, I looked an absolute peach because I was wearing an old Chelsea away kit that I've got, which is covered in paint. I was wearing... Some blue running shorts, but also my Wellington boots at the same time. Right. So yeah. I'm sure you can imagine what that must have looked like. That's when you know you're in a temperate climate. Yes. I believe I saw you in that on the front cover of GQ the other day. <laughs> Just holding the power washer in my hand. Um, and my wife came out and, and asked, you know, how it was going. I went, well, she's like, what do you mean? Like, it's, it's looking pretty good. It's looking it's, it's coming up really well. I went, yeah, but the thing is, is it would come up a lot better if I had a 45 degree nozzle on the end. But what I've got is a zero degree oscillating spout. And it's really not mm. doing the job. And at that point, she closed the door and left me to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she closed the door, whispering to herself, amateur hour. <laughs> I have recently, since the last recording, taken up the wash. And Good. I felt powerful doing it the other Oof. night uh, before bed. I thought, oh, I'll just, um, I don't really want to play Horizon Forbidden West at the moment. It's a bit too intense. I'll just, I'll just go and power wash. Yes. Popped on the garden. I thought, I'll just power wash the garden. Uh, two hours later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my word. And I realized that I've, it, it is like an addiction. And I mean, like, yes. crack. Yeah. Yes, like you, you adjust, you adjust those sweet, those ding sounds, ding, ding, yeah. ding. Oh my word, absolute bliss! It's it's incredible, and all of the news recently that's been coming out of that studio of all the stuff they're doing with it is just unbelievable. There's a VR, yes, I saw a uh, version of the game coming out soon. Uh, there are there is the SpongeBob SquarePants DLC. There is the <laughs> Warhammer Forty Thousand DLC. Yeah, that's the that's the bonkers one. Well, shall we pitch something? What would, what what have they missed out on? What have they overlooked mm. that they think would be perfect? That we think would be perfect for Power Wash Simulator. Well, they've already done uh, Croft Manor, which I think is a is a great one. Mm -hmm. But that leads me to think that they should do other famous homes, like maybe so the Simpsons home. Yeah, I think that's yeah. a that's a good one because you got the treehouse as well outside. Yeah, absolutely. Personally, I'd like to see you go over like, um, like a Splatoon arena. Oh, that'd be gorgeous! Like just even if it was just exclusive to the Switch version, just go, like going over it. Like I'll get all of this ink off. Love that. <laughs> mm. I was thinking, uh, Minas Tirith from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, pre pre battle or after battle? Uh, after battle, because I think actually, uh, if you put a power wash on 
Baradur, that big tower, actually. It's probably like smooth white marble underneath. Lads, I went foraging. Wonderful. Right. Um, so I have always wanted... Since... Well, okay. Scratch that. Since, since all of the lockdown stuff... Yeah. I decided that I really wanted to do foraging, right? And this really? is not Yeah, absolutely. And not from a like not from a like apocalyptic, oh my goodness, what happens if we can't do that? Like not not from that sort of thing. I know a few people got into a few hobbies because they thought what if, you know, the end of the world and all that nonsense. Um but it wasn't actually for that. It was because because we were, you know, during the the lockdown we were um confined to our homes for large portions of it i it meant that the only times we could leave was to go and take exercise and so we'd go and see visit the green spaces that we were um near where we were living at the time and it was lovely to kind of be out in amongst it but i'm one of these people who everything kind of has to have like a purpose and that purpose can't just be because it's nice and having fun. Like, there has to be something productive at the end of it. I know yeah, that you're very utilitarian. I'm a very utilitarian person. Um, and I, I'm trying not to be. I'm trying to be better at that. But um, there's definitely... Uh, that definitely is my, like, go-to uh, perspective on things. So when we were out, out walking one time, I just thought to myself, I wonder if I could eat any of this. Right, that was literally just a, a thought that went into my mind while we're, while we're <laughs> I out have that about constantly. <laughs> yeah, and um, and then it got me thinking. Like, I actually don't really like. I love food, but I don't really know much about food that grows naturally in the UK. Uh, so we decided we want to go and do foraging now that we've moved to our new home. There's a lot more green spaces, and it kind of rekindled that as an interest. And so I booked a uh, a tour with a foraging expert online in Bristol. And they basically took us around this tour of maybe a total of like 500 meters square, like an area of maybe 500 meters square. It took us like two and a half, three hours, this thing. And there were like eight different things that I ate that I never knew that you could just pick up off of the ground and consume, right? Oh, can someone I guess? Right. Uh, well, no, no, because Chris, in my mind, because I'm a massive cynic, whoever it is that Pete's bought to do yeah. this is just like left stuff on the ground. That's what I was thinking. Like, oh, the packets of crisps. Oh, look, look here, look here. It's a wild twirl. <laughs> just yeah. like, just, just like, wedged <laughs> it, in, wedged it in the hole of a tree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, just like left a couple of Sainsbury's buttered mushrooms on the floor and just gone. Oh yeah, help yourself. And if we just look <laughs> underneath this log, it's a Big Mac. <laughs> yeah, I better say a McDonald's apple pie. <laughs> um, obviously, obviously, number one, I'm thinking mushrooms. That's when I when I think of foraging. That's what I think of. Absolutely, absolutely, mushrooms and stuff. So we found something called a jelly ear, um, and a jelly ear is um, something that uh, grows on logs that are mouldy and dying, and you know that sort of thing. You're selling it to me. Well, as part of foraging, you realise that it's not actually just it's not just consuming things that foragers go for it also has specific properties that they're looking for so i believe jelly ear was something that uh you could cook up and consume and that would be like a kind of food like you, you know it would keep you it would keep you going so you could you could you could do that um and then within 20 meters there was another kind of mushroom that was growing on living trees rather than an old log and this was stuff that he basically said to us if you take this off and then chuck them in your pocket and um take them back to wherever you know camp is or whatever it is these are basically like these are basically fire lighters these are like these are like nature's fire lighters right so you could they are the things that will actually get a fire going really really quickly so there's a few mushrooms that we found it is going to blow your mind 
when I tell you that you can consume daisies. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Daisies are a kind of food that you can consume. It's the it's the yellow bit really that you that you kind of want to eat. But you can eat the whole thing. And it it has sustenance, it has nutrients in it. You probably don't want to live off of just that, but you can absolutely use it to uh, uh, if you're fancy pants like me, you could use it to like garnish out like a salad and it's all perfectly yeah. edible. It wouldn't be the center of a roast dinner. Exactly, yeah. And then also, which was kind of equally interesting and terrifying, is he also pointed out things that were... So things that you could make glue out of, for example. So he'd say like, right, put this in your mouth. And I'd be like, nom, 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 nom. And he goes, now don't swallow it. I was like, okay. Um, and he goes, spit it out to your hand. I was like, okay. Basically, it was like, it was a it was a kind of binding agent. So basically, the, by masticating, it would create a adhesive. And so you could use that for things like covering up wounds or literally just binding stuff together um, temporarily. And then there were also things that he would point out where he would say things like, right, look at this thing. This looks perf- like the previous thing we ate, isn't? Doesn't it? It's like, oh yeah, on first inspection, it does. Like, right, this bit here um, shows you that it's a very different thing. It's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And he goes, if you eat this within thirty minutes, you will die an extremely painful death. Extremely painful. I was like, oh, don't swallow, don't swallow. Uh, and it was just this thing whereby, and he would point out all of these different things that were like, that will kill you, that will kill you, that will kill you. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things of like, you know, obviously we're in England's green and pleasant lands. It turns out they're not that pleasant. It's certainly green, but like some of it really is super dangerous, super, super duper dangerous. Uh, uh, is, is this a point of the tale, Chris, where Pete tells us that now he's written a strongly worded letter to the council to burn it all down. Yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. <laughs> raise it to the ground. <laughs> yeah. Why is yeah. this allowed? <laughs> yeah. You're worried about that cross sign for the kids. There's a tree over there that will kill you in 20 minutes if you eat the bark. <laughs> but it's but it's it was absolutely incredible. But one of the really cool things about it that I that I shared with him was that he said one of the reasons he liked to do foraging is that you would eat things with flavors that you would never get mm. anywhere else. Like, like, and he, he was absolutely right. Like, I was trying things and I was like, this is so, the textures, the flavors, they're all super strange. You would never get these from a restaurant because they're just seen as like, I mean, they're daisies. You know, there's just, you know, it's just things that you just see in a field. So you came round to my house the other day, Sam. It's lovely to have you there. And as usual, we, it was a it was a long old session. We did well. Yeah, we did. We started off with Lord of the Rings: Journeys of Middle Earth, which we've spoken about before in a previous pod, which still appears to be quite a difficult game for us to try and crack. <laughs> um, God, we're so bad at that game. I know. Uh, uh, it reminds me a little bit of some of the missions we had in Arkham Horror: The Car Game. Well, it kind of reminds me more of when we were first playing Pandemic and then I realised we were playing it wrong. Sandemic. And then it suddenly became it suddenly became a lot easier. So But but the reason why I was really keen for you to be there was because I, I whipped onto the table a game that I'd bought just a spur of the moment purchase. Three days before I'd never heard of this game. And then I saw someone talk about it online and it mentioned things that were real hooks for me. One, it was a racing game. I said, I love a racing game. Sam whet my appetite for racing games recently with when we played Heat. Mm. And two, it was a family weight sort of game. And, and racing games for me are really good fun when you play them with large groups of people. Mm. And generally speaking, the largest group of people I tend to play with is my own family. Like when I go back down south to see the family, like generally like birthdays yeah. or Christmas time, say, for example. And it had a, has this really interesting kind of notion about how it does racing. And this is a game called Wandering Towers. Wandering Towers. Wandering uh, Towers. Wandering Towers, designed by Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer. Oh, um, and names you should recognise. Yes. And why should we recognise them, Sam? Um, because they're responsible for some pretty... 
pretty bloody good games. I'll tell you that much, Chris. Yeah, um, one of them being Azul, and you've just recently bought the Azul Travel Edition. I bought Azul Mini recently, which is really good, and the other one being Six Nymphed. Six Nymphed. The game that Pete described as, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but we were playing on a wet and rainy day in Bristol. <laughs> you know what? I stand by it. Yeah, Peter, <laughs> I'm not reading that Wellington. Yep. Um, <laughs> but Pete, so I want you to picture this, listener. You've got a like a ring of spaces, and if you look at it, it's this kind of like fantastical landscape. And on like half of these spaces are a series of cardboard towers, you know, made of rigid cardboard that you assemble once and they go into their lovely little space in the box. So the setup and teardown is so quick in this game. Okay. Yeah. And there is a tower there that is a raven tower, which is a black tower. The aim of the game is to get your wizards into this raven tower. And this raven tower is like essentially a little bin on the table. On your go, you've got a hand of cards each. You play a card, you play two cards, and you play cards which determine which actions you can do. And those actions are namely follows. I can move my wizard a certain number of spaces, so I pick any wizard I've got of my colour and hop along, so it's kind of move, or I move a tower. And that's when I physically pick up a tower and move it around. And that tower might have some of my pieces, it may have some of Sam's. What I'm trying to do is strategically get my players around so I can time it so they'll drop inside the Raven Tower. Right. And that is one of the win states. One of the win states is to get all of your wizards in the Raven Tower. The other thing you need to do is to flip all your magic potions. And the way you do that is by removing a tower and you cover or imprison another wizard on top of another tower because these wizard towers stack. And then, a bit like Camel Up, say if I, I say if I stacked a tower on top of one of Sam's wizards, I could then flip my potion then I could play another card to move a tower. I can move that entire massive power pile of towers, which is now one tower around the board. And this is where the game gets really funny. Because what happens is you get this beautiful game of free card Monte, where Sam and I will be chatting because it's a very sociable game. You know, it's been a while since we've seen each other. And I look at the board and I think, oh, I can't remember where my wizard is now. It's under <laughs> one of these towers. Right. And Sam's just moved that tower. And I'm thinking, okay, I swear it was there. So I'm going to waste a card now and move a tower to hopefully reveal mine, but it might not be. So what can happen is you can lose your wizards in the race. And for me, what makes this really interesting is it's not a racing game. It's a chasing game because there's not one. The finish line keeps moving. Right. And you're you're going on this little jolly jape, you know, going around this little ring. It's just a delight really. It's it's not necessarily overly crunchy, but it doesn't outstay its welcome. I think the game starts off incredibly slowly and kind of mathsy in a way that all you're just trying to do is try to look at the cards that you've got and go, right, the tower's five steps away. I can play my four card and then my one card and then get get a wizard into a tower. And that's all you're really thinking about when you first... It's just trying to work that out. But the minute your wizards start getting covered up and then towers get stacked onto towers and then you suddenly got like a tower that's five towers tall on the edge of the board and you're trying to work out, right, what floor was my wizard in and what floor was Chris's wizard in? Because I don't want to release Chris's wizard, but I want to release my wizard to then get into the tower. The minute that kind of happens, then it the, the whole game just came just came alive for me. Like oh, I, that that was it. That this is this is why this game is just tons and tons of fun. Is there like an element of bluffing to it as well? Is there are, are there any like psychological tricks that you can play while you play? There, I, I think you can you can definitely do things to try and confuse confuse the your opponents mm-hmm. by adding towers onto other towers. So suddenly it goes from you know and I'm confusing myself sort of talking about this. So you could have a situation where you've just got one wizard being covered by one tower. And then you could move that tower onto another tower and then move a tower on top of that. And then suddenly it's like a wizard in between four towers rather than being mm-hmm. on top of one. 
and like you can you could do that in terms of trying to bamboozle your opponent in terms of right. making a stack so big or you know it's like the cup game isn't it it's, it's you know it's the moving around of the cup, the cup and ball mm-hmm. it's just trying to trying to do that to try and bamboozle your opponent but really trying to remember where all the figures are because that's the thing i didn't really clock onto when we first started playing is and it's a really really clever bit of the design because to win, you have to do both things. You have to get all your wizards into the tower, but also you have to fill up your potions. And the only way to fill up your potions is by covering up opponents' wizards by the tower. You have to know where every wizard is. You have to know where your wizard is and where opponents' wizards are because you need to know what towers to uncover so then you can recover them back up again to fill up your potions. And also, you can keep your wizards safe by covering them up, which stops your opponents covering them up. Like, I don't know what this game would be like with six players. Like, having to keep track of, like, five or six... That sounds like chaos. ...other wizards. Like, I think this game just becomes unhinged at six players. I think at I two, literally looking away for five seconds, looking back yep. at the board and just going, hang on, whoa, 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 Chris, whoa! I have wizards <laughs> here. I, there were wizards here a second ago, and that yeah. tower is now six six stacks tall. What what is going on? Like even with two players, it felt yeah. like on the edge of getting out of control. Um, so I, I mean, I'd love to do I'd love to do a full six player because I think it would just be bonkers. But so I I debuted that. That's what I wanted to show Sam. I debuted it. I Debuting did. now at ChrisCon. Bell of the Ball. KCon 2023. <laughs> but then Sam obviously had to try and show me up. So he reaches into his bag and puts several yes. games on the table. Oh several games. One of which being Spots. And you might have seen Spots if you've been on our Instagram feed because I put up a rather naughty picture of the game Spots on our Instagram feed. Mm-hmm. Well, I said, sort of questioned whether it was naughty or not. but um, It left an impression. It certainly left an impression. And you can see Bert for yourself uh, if you go to at Staying In Pod. But Spots is a game by one of, if not my favourite board game publisher, which is CMYK. And they are the publishers that brought us Monikers, mm-hmm. uh, Wavelength, mm-hmm. and The Fuzzies, mm. which is a pretty hot trio of games that um, are all pretty excellent. Mm. So Spots is um, it's um, a push-your-luck game, which is kind of a family-friendly way of saying it's a gambling game. Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> it's not gambling, Grandma. It's that's push your luck. Yeah. That's. Mm, mm. I'm going to go think on that because that's that is very true. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Paddy Power starts using that as uh, <laughs> push your luck responsibly. And and it comes in this lovely blue box, which is full to the brim of of bones and dice, but most cool. importantly. A whole load of sweet, beautiful little doggos. Nice. And the aim of the game is is pretty simple. All you've got to do is cover the dogs with the appropriate dice. And you do that by filling up the spots that are on their body. So, for example, if you've been to our Instagram page or on Facebook, you will have seen Bert. And he has one prominent spot on him. And all you need to do is roll a one. And then you would cover up Bert's whole spot. Um, yeah, uh, other dogs, you know, have different collections of five spots, three spots, whatever. And I think what what impresses me most about spots and the impression it makes on you the moment you get out of the box and still does now, or even to this day after playing it five or six times, or whatever, is that none of what you're doing looks really out of place or abstract, to, despite being a very, very abstract push-or-luck context. Right. It is almost like someone's turned craps into a board game and given it and given it a, a, a theme. And 
part of the way it does that is is through the art and through the design, which is by John Bond, I should say, is that the spots on the dogs are so well arranged and so well blended into the other natural markings that the dogs have, but also mm. so well defined that you never get confused as to what is denoting the pips on the dice and what are just the natural markings of the dogs, then the game just melts away from this raw abstraction of of push your luck. And it's also worth mentioning that like that the pips on the dice themselves match this same philosophy. They're not your usual symmetrical clean black pips on white dice, but some of the pips also have like fuzzy edges and they're irregular in size. So when you start covering up the spots on the dogs with mm. the dice, like nothing looks out of place and it's and it's if anything, I think Spots is just a really good example of excellent design in a board game and also how to treat a very, very abstract concept and mechanic as push your luck is with a really deft touch in terms of artistry and theme. But the main game itself does come down to this push your luck mechanic. And what you're trying to do is you're using actions which are available to all players in the middle of the table to roll dice and then assign them to your dogs. The actions themselves are wonderful and varied. They range from lots of things like uh, roll two dice and then you can roll an additional dice if you want to or roll three dice and then roll one dice and maybe you roll another dice and maybe you'll roll another dice but it's up to you when you stop rolling dice and other ones where it's like roll 12 dice and you choose one number and you can have all of those dice from what you've from what you've rolled. When an action's used, it becomes unavailable to the rest of the table until there's only one action left and then they all get recycled again. So there's lots and lots of dice chucking around and there's element of risk that comes from the actions and hoping that that the action that you want will be there when it comes on to your turn. But the real element of risk comes from how you go bust. And that is, if you ever have um, dice buried underneath your little doggy house, so when you can't assign dice, you have to bury them. Mm-hmm. And, if the, and if the dice that you've buried ever total over seven, as in the numbers on the dice, then you go bust and all of your dice are returned. All of the dice that you've buried and all of the dice that you've assigned to the dogs, they all get returned and you have to start again. Like for me, this feels like a very well tested game because yeah. mm-hmm. they've one of my favourite gaming experiences is Risk Express, um, which yes. you know a charity shop purchase. Ryan Knitzi's Risk, Risk Express that we played in Frankfurt, um, and that is that is like an unhinged version of this, where it's just this chaotic rolling yeah. of dice and placing it there. <laughs> yes, it I is. really, I really love that kind of sensation of rolling a dice and placing it on its its own special square on the board and watching these things yeah. um, appear there. What this does, Spots does, that Risk Express doesn't have, is it has a sense of a structure there, but that structure doesn't lose that sense of fun of that, and that a freewheeling of thinking, I don't I know the odds are against me. But I forgot. I feel. I, I feel like the dice are on my side now. I'm going to roll because I've just stared into the eyes of Bongo the dog. They've got that balance where there's enough of these little variable power things that you can kind of cash in yeah. on. And initially, I was like, "Oh, are they just going to ruin Risk Express with all of these different plethora of choices?" Well, no, because actually, they're just enough there to help you stay in the game a little bit longer. And it adds, it just compounds that kind of anxiety, that wonderful, beautiful kind of thrill of like, oh my word, am I going to survive another round? Come on, Leaf the dog. I know, come on, we can get through this for another one more round. I know I've got, I've got if I get a free now, I can't afford to put a free on any dog and I can't put it, bury it. Oh, but, but you know, a free hasn't come up yet. So it's not going to come up this round. It's not going to come up this round. Oh, it's just a delight. And we played it with a full player count. It was an yeah. absolute delight generally one of my favorites this year i think any game that that uses a gambling mechanic if it can do it whilst also making the odds calculations really really simple yeah i think it's always a success because 
Yep. In terms of like how you calculate those odds, you've got two things you're dealing with. You've got the dice that you've buried not totaling up over seven, and then you've got all the spots you need to fill up. And from there, it's really quite easy to calculate what kind of risk that you're dealing with. So if you've got if you've got two dice in your in your plot and they only add up to four and you need a three and a five to finish off a dog, you know, you've got a one in six chance of going bust on that turn. And it makes it very, very easy just to go, right, I'm just going to push it. I'm just going to push yeah. it just a little bit more because I know that the odds are, it's very, very obvious to me what the odds are on this roll. There is an ephemeral joy in thinking you can beat the system. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes. Yes. Pete, I'm trying to convince... Well, I'm not trying to convince him because I think Sam will just do it anyway. But I was talking to Sam the other day, Pete, mm. about... I heard about this tea yeah. that's so wicked strong with caffeine's Japanese tea that you get a high off it. Have you heard about this? <laughs> I'd love to experience that. <laughs> Given the fact that Sam and I have pretty much kicked caffeine, can you imagine what that would do to us? It'd be like train spying. Mm. <laughs> How is it that we've got into our late thirties and we're having conversations like we're sixteen? I heard about this wicked tea that if we could just get hold of it, we could get high off of it. <laughs> it's like it's like it's like that kid I went to a kid I used to know um, from school who on his lunch break he would go to the corner shop buy mm. a bag of icing sugar stick a straw in it and just suck the whole thing up <laughs> I mean I can't I'm trying to find this tea now and I can't find it I think you've imagined this Chris yeah I, I think have. I, this can't be real surely a, a tea if there Chris yeah if, if if Chris if there was a tea in England that got you high from having lots of caffeine inside of it. I feel like there would be a lot more buzz about it. It would have been banned by now. The government would have yeah, cracked true. down on yeah, this high true. caffeine tea. Are you sure you're not thinking of something like spice or something? <laughs> the science oh. behind the effects of tea on the body to get tea drunk. Okay. Here is, we go. When you get tea drunk, you will experience, and this is from Dan Fay Tea, uh, purveyors of the finest Himalayan mountain teas from Nepal. Shout out. When you get tea drunk, you will experience completely different sensations with the shift of your mental state, achieving high focus and alertness, while also offering a soothing effect. Also, you will not experience any catastrophic side effects that are common with practicing intoxicating substances, such as alcohol, marijuana, or cannabis. Uh, not sure why they've divided those two out. Yeah. Uh, at the end of uh, at the end of that one, um, to find the science behind the effects of tea for you to get tea drunk or tea high, we have to dig for insights into that. Blah 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 blah. Basically, it's to do with caffeine catechins, which I'm fairly confident is a uh, a, a division of the Imperial Guard, and L-theanine, um, which has improved cognitive performance associations. All right. I'll just put six bags of tea in my mug. <laughs> oh, God. On the last episode, you folks were talking about Aircon, a.k.a. the event that keeps on giving. Were we? Yeah, Lord of the Rings Journey mm. to Middle-earth. Of course, of course. And um, when we were at the event, I was fortunate enough to get to speak with a man whose name escapes me right now from Hachette. Flavian? Yes. And sort of got chatting with them about their upcoming lineup and all that good stuff. And under the radar, uh, Flavian snuck me a copy of... He's going to get it. Critical Foundation, Episode Zero, which is a, uh, as far as I understand, a promo-only little box set, which introduces, I think it was meant to be used as like a giveaway or like to, to press or 
whoever it is that we, whatever it is that we are. Um, and it sort of introduces the idea of what critical foundation is. And critical foundation yeah. is... So critical foundation season one is kind of what comes after this. And this little box that I got given uh, is the thing that kind of says, if you like this, you might like this uh, because it's basically an intro to that. So the idea behind it is, the way it was pitched to me is, do you like role-playing games? And I was like, I do. Tick. Yeah. And they said, well, look, the thing about role-playing games is that they're actually, the, 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 the barrier to entry to get into them is actually exceedingly high. And that is something that I totally agree with. That is something that I really found off-putting when I was getting into, starting to get into role-playing games a few years ago. Mm. And this is coming from somebody who, let's not muck around, plays tabletop miniatures war games, is into some pretty silly hardcore video games, has been around games for 30-odd years, 35-plus years. You know, like, I've, I know games, and RPGs absolutely flummox me when I try to get into them because there's a lot of things that are the barrier to entry. I need to talk about this stuff because this kind of gives you the whole point of what this product is, and this is really important. So when I started to get into RPGs, the immediate thing you need to know is there's a bunch of terminology that if you even want to start to understand how they play or start purchasing your first few of the, like your first game, let's say, to start to see whether or not you like it, there's actually a bunch of terminology that you need to know, otherwise you might end up in, like, up up the river without a paddle. So, so, what, do, so what do you mean? So, for example, you need to know that there is a difference between a core book, a source book, and then potentially things like mission books or, um, you know, adventure books or, or, or whatever it ends up, ends up being. There's a difference between, and this, this is true of Dungeons and Dragons. Remember, Dungeons and Dragons is the biggest version of one of these. If you want to play Dungeons and Dragons, there's two routes. There's, you get the starter box, and that does have everything that you need in it, but it's not the thing that they push. The thing that they actually push is, okay, you need to get the player's handbook. And you also need to get the DM book, basically. The guidebook or something along those lines, yeah. Um, but you also need to get the monster manual. Because between those three books, that is the player's rules, as in here's the rules to play the game. The DM's guide, the DM, whatever, whatever it's called, um, to basically understand how a how you're meant to run one of these adventures as the dm as the dungeon master and then the monster manual is about okay and here's all of the information of all of the baddies because we're not going to tell you any of them in the previous two books oh and by the way these three books none of them contain an adventure right so so now you've got to spend you know let's say what 80 90 quid on those three books and then you need to spend 20 or 30 quid on buying some adventures or the other side of that is the barrier to entry is, or you need to go and create your own, right? Like this is a huge barrier of entry. But the other part of the uh, barrier to entry is needing somebody to kind of walk you through the ropes of it, right? So mm -hmm. uh, war games run into the same problem. If you want to learn how to play Carnival, uh, which is a hot new miniatures game, um, you need somebody really to show you how to play that game. Like, Sitting down with a rule book really isn't going to teach you about the flow and how it's all meant to work. You really want to have somebody to show you how to play that thing. It's the same with role-playing games. You want somebody to run your first session for you so you understand what the expectation is because there's a lot of quote-unquote rules that aren't really written down. They're just make sure that you your players have a nice time and make sure that you organize the session for X amount of length and here's what an X card is, right? Like, all these different things. So the barrier entry is super, super high. So all that preamble is useful because Critical Foundation is basically made for board gamers who want to try role-playing games. Okay. So the idea is that, and, and the website proudly claims, it is a, quote, intro to role-playing. So in the box for episode zero, 
We'll get to the naming conventions in a second. Um, you're given a couple of dice, uh, a little screen that's for the for the person who's running the games for some like here's how combat works on the fly and all that sort of stuff. So you're not constantly looking through a rule book. You get some a little adventure. You get episode zero, um, and you get things to hand out to your players. So I ran this as a one-on-one adventure uh, myself and uh, Alex. And the adventure is kind of cyberpunk. It's near future. I think it's 2030s. Um, it's massive corporations control everything and everything's a bit dark and sinister. Yeah, and netrunnery. Yeah, netrunnery, cyberpunky, that kind of thing. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. And um, <laughs> so the, the handouts for the players are things like, cool, here's your character. Name them. But this is everything. There's no character creation. There's no um, having to understand every single thing on a character sheet. It's just, here's the things that run this game. So uh, you have a primary attribute, for example, like you might be particularly smart or particularly physical uh, or something else. Again, that has its roots in things like D&D. You know, the thief is like this. The ranger is like this. Um, You have... An amount of health, two points, no more, no less. Uh, so if you lose all your health, you are knocked out of the scene. There's no such thing as player death. Uh, you're just knocked out of the scene and you have to basically sit out until you get to the next scene and you explain why you were knocked out, basically. Um, so very friendly in that way. Um, equipment comes on cards. Um, some of the D&D starter sets do this. I think one of the Warhammer fantasy yeah. roleplay ones do, does this too, where it's like, cool, here's a, you know, the equivalent of a potions or, uh, you know, here's your Kevlar armor, right? And that will tell you exactly what that piece of equipment does. So again, there's no more like, okay, well, either all your players need to go and buy a 35 quid book or you need to tell them exactly what this is and give them some cheat sheets. No, it's nothing like that. It's just, here's a card. Um, and it will tell you how this how how these things work out, and you get some as I say, you get some dice in the box as well, and they're all very simple. The dice, there's no real adding up or subtracting. There's not a huge amount of that stuff anyway. It's just you either succeed based on uh, you know a skill check effectively that can either affect the group. Um, so you all do a skill check. Let's say you were caught in a avalanche as a group, you'd all do the skill check, or let's say you walked off the side of a cliff, that would be an individual skill check, right? So the individual has to roll to see physical, do you do you hang on to the side? And that's really how, you know, skill resolution. There's combat, it's really simple. You fight, all the enemies fight. You fight, works like that. And the adventure that it comes with, episode zero, very, very quick. And I thought actually too quick, but again, we'll get to the episodes in a bit, um, the episode structure in a bit, over in about 25 minutes, 30 minutes uh, for this one adventure. And it's laid out pretty well in terms of, yo, this is everything that you can do in the, in, in the scene. This is how I think this scene will play out. Okay, so the, the adventure basically writes out, this is, how this, this is how the adventure will play out. And this is sort of edging towards where where the whether or not this is for you is 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 kind of up for debate because we we've all played RPGs before, so we know that that sounds a lot like railroading, and that's some, railroading is something that is not frowned upon necessarily, but like it's something that is a very specific GM led, um, very prep heavy gameplay that some people really don't like. It feels a lot more like choose your own adventure. Like you do this or this, which one is it? Rather than the point crawl stuff of Dungeons and Dragons where it's like, you can go anywhere. What do you want to do? And we'll, we'll yeah. figure it out, right? Yeah, sure. Um, Pete, can I ask a question in terms of how it eases the GM into the role? Because I've played a few board games where, where like... You you play the first campaign and the tutorial is happening as you're playing the game. Mm-hmm. You're fed the instructions. You're playing. Like how does it how does it introduce GMs to the world of role playing? So it it does it in the same way that all role playing games do, and this is why I think it's a really good introduction to role playing. It basically just says read all this, like, but what you're reading is one episode, 
right? So it runs you through, these are all of the things that you will do. And episode zero is very, very good at this actually. And it essentially just says, it essentially gives you a bit of role-playing where you interact with the GM, a bit of role-playing where you interact with the other players that are at the table, um, a bit of world-building setup stuff, a bit of here's all your equipment, here's how all of this stuff works, a bit of, right, okay, um, you've got to use your brains to figure out where you need to go. Here's a map. So you get given a card with a map on it of like, where do you want to go within this within this base? Because uh, it's all about infiltrating a base. Uh, it's a bit Metal Geary, actually. Mm. And um, there's a bit of combat. There's a bit of hacking. There's a bit of, you know, all of these little different things that you would expect from a sort of near future sci-fi role-playing game. And it basically says to the GM, just read this this first adventure. As, as long as you've given it a read, just start running it. And boy, they are right. It is really easy to get this to the table. Like I, I skimmed over it in 15 minutes and then was like, right, Alex, do you want, do you want to play? And she's like, oh, yeah, sure. Sat down, started playing, and it was done in 25 minutes. Like, and I didn't run into any issues. Like, that is incredible. Like, that is genuinely a really impressive achievement from this stuff. So let's touch on the episodes. Episode zero was 25 minutes. Uh, that is deliberate. Yeah. You actually get, I think it's 10 episodes in a season. Nine. nine. Is it nine? Is it nine? Yeah. You're right. It is nine. Mm-hmm. Um, you actually get nine episodes in season one of Critical Foundation. Um which I will say I've not played, so I can't talk to the quality of those parts of the adventure. Um, But episode zero feels very much like that. Um, Feels very much like, okay, this is what what you're going to expect. And it's timed really well. And the whole point of it is that it's set up like like a TV show. Like it's very deliberately using the language of television because it's trying to get across what role playing really is, or at least this kind of role playing really is. So each episode, you know, half an hour, whatever it is, basically gives you, we would call it like in our RPGs, if you've played them before, we would call them like a series of short encounters, like two or three yeah. encounters. Um, okay. And so a season is really like three or four nights, you know, three or four, you know, couple of hour sessions, let's say, um, which from my side of things, brilliant, like, I love it when role-playing games are short. Like, that's why I play, like playing Call of Cthulhu one-shots because they're two and a half hours. You run all the characters like you stole them. Everyone's dead by the end. And it's great because you've all come away from a, a memorable <laughs> evening, right? Um, yeah. Um, but but if you're after something that's like, you know, if you're just like RPGs are just my one thing and you want a 90-hour campaign, like this isn't going to give it to you because it's not the product for you. It's deliberately not designed for you. So... Looking at that time then and looking at the price mm-hmm. of it, so season one is available in the UK. Oh, I managed okay. to find it at um at Wayland Games for twenty four quid. Twenty four quid that's not bad. Twenty four quid is about the cost of a starter set. So it's like three quid an episode, yeah. roughly. So yeah, uh, like so like I say, episode zero, a really interesting uh, like introduction to this. I'm really interested in finding out more. So I know the box for season one comes with a bunch more stuff. It comes with like, you know, as you would expect, more adventures, more accessories. Um, it also comes with some other bits and pieces. There's like dry wipe erasers, which we're big fans of, obviously. Yeah. Um, it also mm-hmm. comes with some more tokens and all that good stuff um, uh, for, for different kinds of um, abilities is, is my understanding. I What I want to know is in that rule book, is there more, are there more like tips and advice for GMs to basically take the skeleton of what these adventures are and say, look, don't worry about it. If your players start going off in a weird direction, this is how to handle it. Get them back on track and here are the subtle ways that you might do that. Because like I say, as an introduction to role-playing, which to be clear, that is what this product specifically aims to do. As an introduction, it's very smart, very good, has some very clever ideas in it. And I'm really interested in seeing how they might take this forward into full season, 
how they might then follow that season up, but also how they might then take on other genres. Like how do they take on fantasy? Is it just the same kind of choose your own adventure-ish kind of material? Or does this ever evolve into, this is a full role-playing game experience now? Can, can tea get you high if you smoke it? Well, I've known people who smoke tea bags. Smoke, smoking tea may lower anxiety levels, boost focus, learning and memory, and may provide a feeling of getting high. However, we encourage you to drink tea rather than smoke. <laughs> I, 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 I feel I've, I've smoked a chocolate finger. <laughs> Okay, right, hold on. The year was 2008. (laughs) Do you mean like a chocolate finger finger? Yeah, yeah, chocolate finger finger. Like capital F finger? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. All right, okay. Because I was going to say, if if there was one chocolate that looked like a cigar, then then I'd say a Twix or maybe, you know, like a double-decker or something. But but go on. And if there was one finger that was worth smoking, it wouldn't be the fish. Mm. Yeah, so... uh, um, I bit off both ends. It's a bit like a Tim Tam. Okay. Just so obviously you could go up. Yeah. Go up. What? Yeah. yeah. Ob- okay. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah, lit the obviously. end. Obviously. I could. I got it to light. It was very stubborn. But I got it to light. It was very stubborn. And I managed to of exhale. Of course. Of course. There's nothing flammable in it. You were able to exhale, what, finger smoke? Yeah. What a revelation. Please don't try this at home. Do not no. try this at home. No. It's a stupid thing. Can I can I just can I just mention briefly one more game that we played that 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 me and Chris played, which is joining Bonanza as probably one of my in sort of like my top five favourite card games, mm. and it's one that I've been wanting to play for a while. And we've already mentioned the designer, the Mister Knizzy, the, the 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 good doctor himself, <laughs> Reiner Knizia. Yeah, and I think. This is one game that when I when I've already started to think about right what games are coming to Bavaria with me, this is one along with Bonanza that is just going straight into my bag, and it's High Society, and this game has been out for ages. I think it's sort of changed hands with publishers loads and loads yeah. of loads, but Osprey um, have it at the moment, and they gave it a new lick of paint, some incredible artwork from Medusa Dollmaker. Um, which has turned it into this art deco oh it's beautiful scenery that you just plaster all over your table and it's a genre of game that i've always been a bit lukewarm on so it's like an it's an auction game i can understand like how auction games make things quite exciting but it's never really you know grabbed me but high society just has that extra knizzy twist which is so how high society works is you're you're all basically have got a handful of money and it ranges from $1000 up to about $35,000 or something like that. You have a ton of money to spend and everyone has the same, starts off with the same. And you're all aiming basically to spend your money in order to be classed, you know, the best in society, the highest in society. So you want to spend your money on Haute cuisine, and you want to spend your money on fancy holidays and doing all this lovely stuff so everyone knows how rich and how privileged you are. So, what happens every turn is a card gets flipped over, and everyone bids on trying to buy that card. Um, when everyone passes, whoever made the highest bid wins. They take the card, and that card will be worth a certain number of points. Most points at the end of the game wins. Huzzah! But as I already mentioned, there are some there is there are a couple of little Reiner Knizia twists in. There are some cards which provide a negative score and effects, mm-hmm. and then essentially you're bidding not to take the card. Okay. The other twist is money isn't interchangeable, and this only really struck me when I played this game for like the second or third time. How important this is as a rule. Very important. What I mean by that is if you played like an eight. And then you upped your bid by $2,000 to make it $10,000. You couldn't then take that and replace it with a $10,000 card that you've got in your hand. You lose the small denominations of your dollars if you were to win that, win that card. And that's important because the big twist of this game 
And the what makes this game sing, sing, sing is that if you are the player with the least amount of money at the end of the game, you score zero. No matter how many cards you manage to collect, if you bid and you placed and you won and spent the most money, you end up with absolutely nothing. Hmm. And that simple rule completely changes the whole dynamic of what you're trying to do in the table and completely changes the whole dynamic of the auction. And because you all have exactly the same hand of cash, you are aware at all times how much people are spending. And therefore, and I think this is what makes it an interesting auction game for me, is that you will enter rounds of bidding for a card with no intention of buying the card, but just upping the price in order to make the other people around the table Brilliant. spend and commit Brilliant. more money yeah. and, and put it into the pot. And when you see people going from like a hand of 15 cards to just holding two at the end... That was me. That's just... Yeah, it's just incredible. Yeah, I spaffed all my money very, very quickly. <laughs> and then Sam whispered <laughs> in my ear, you know, you can't do any kind of change here, any of those cards. And I looked down and I'd, I'd spent all my big numbered cards and all I had left was my meagre amount. And, and there wasn't enough there really for me to kind of force people to bid higher but it was still exhilarating it still felt like a photo finish even at the end even even as you're looking around thinking well hang on oh or are they are they are they are they are they playing it more strategically here because they've got more cards than i have but actually no i i actually put a lot of money in but i've got some really good cards as a consequence yeah i think the reason why even if you do spend loads of money why this game stays exhilarating and thrilling till the end is because not losing is more important than winning. That's really good. Like being able to spend a lot of money, but yeah. not more money than the person next to you yeah. is actually more of a thrill than yeah. if you win and have done a really good job of balancing your that's books. Because then it's like three winners, one loser. As I said, it's a card game that's been around for ages and I've slept on it for years because I've been put off by the fact it's an auction game. But it yeah. is... It is a. It's an. In, the minute I played it, I said out loud, "This is an instant classic." And everyone turned around to me and went, "What, what are you talking about?" And then I realised that's something me and Chris say to each other. Uh, <coughs> I knew what I was on about. <laughs> so, Peter Willington. Hi. Is it me you're looking for? Yeah, I'm just. I'm just thinking yeah what are you thinking go on you tell me what's next after foraging yeah what's the most logical thing to move on to next after you've foraged mm, yeah i i think it's i think it's, what do you think it is go on you tell me what you think i'm gonna do is he is he gonna go full rambo full survival yeah like is he gonna go alex order me a taxi blindfold me send me off somewhere yeah. and i've just got to make my own way home he, he, he takes the blindfold off he's yeah. in the bear pit in bristol where am i where am i i found some mushrooms and then the colonel comes and brings him out of retirement a la rambo yeah and he's and, you know he's lit a fire of a mushroom can you bivouac pete i've bivouacked <laughs> can you can you bivouac I've bivouacked, yeah. I used to be in the Scouts. Have you done any backwards cooking? <laughs> done backwards cooking, yeah. Done. I did, I did what? backwards cooking. Hold coo on, stop, stop, stop. Rewind, rewind, rewind. Backwards? Backwards cooking. Backwards cooking. cooking. So Pete and I were both in the Scouts, not in the same troop. Backwards cooking is where... I was in the Scouts. Were you? Of course I was. Who wasn't? So you never did backwards cooking in the Scouts then? Well, you've got to explain it to me first, and then I'll be able to tell you whether I did backwards cooking or not. Yeah, sure. So it was basically where you make your utensils out of things like foil and stuff. So you don't actually have any cooking utensils. So you're having to kind of like yeah. build the utensils to cook from, cook with, sorry, I should say. That's it. Sorry, I'm, I'm still trying to understand how that's backwards cooking. Backwards, backwards, not backwards. 
in the backwoods. Oh, backwoods yeah. cooking. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did tons of that. I thought yeah. you meant backwoods cooking. As in, like, how does that work? How do you take something that's cooked to make it raw again? Turn a cooked rainbow trout into, like, a living, breathing, flapping around fish. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this is very much a four candles situation, isn't it? Yeah, um, isn't it? <laughs> So I'm actually trying to go as green as I can at the moment, and uh, uh, the, the the big a big part of it for me that I didn't really talk about is, you know, I kind of like the idea of being able to go and get food that's all around you, and like you know a bit of that return to nature yeah. thing. So mm-hmm. one of the big things at the moment for me is like trying to figure out like how can I be more ethical and green and all that sort of thing. So uh, probably the next big full Willington is me electrifying like my entire house <laughs> with solar. What? What, to stop to stop to stop thieves. Yeah, I thought that was going to be like some sort of Home Alone situation where he just electrifies his soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't stand there, Alex. Don't touch that. I'm, I want to make sure that these two bumbling thieves don't manage to make off with whatever it is that they were going to steal in Home Alone one and two. Um, so going to do that, and also um, I've been out in my garden a lot recently, and I recently bought a pair of safety goggles uh, because I yes. I have something called um, a Titan drill. Yeah, uh, that got yes, per, per, uh, yeah, yeah, a Titan. Um, because I need to, I need to dig up a massive block of concrete that is built into my garden oh, and break the whole thing up. Now I mm-hmm. am not. I am a soft southern bell, and I am not used to this as an idea. So I'm going to go full into this. These safety goggles are the first step of me becoming a real handyman. Um, well, if you've got DIY advice for Peter Willington, I'd love to hear it. I'd love to hear it. Yes. Uh, measure twice, cut once. Uh, mm-hmm. The old adage. Yep works really well um then please do send it along to stayinginpod at gmail.com um or just let us know on twitter instagram facebook yep whatever we're there at staying in pod um talking of instagram if you were one of the uh, many many people who entered our competition to win a copy of hungry monkeys mm-hmm. great game um the excellent game from um, Heidelberg Games. Um, then the winner has now been announced. The winner has been chosen and I'll be getting in contact with you um, very shortly to find out where your address is and we will send, we'll ship off that copy of the game to you and maybe include a little sticker in there or something like that. Where where can people see where it has been announced as per competition law in the UK? Uh, on Instagram at stayinginpod. Excellent stuff. The other thing that you can do um, that's really nice is you can check out Chris's little playlists that he makes. Do you mean on Spotify, sir? I do mean on Spotify. Yeah, he's made three of them. Three varied and um, colourful and interesting playlists that capture the soundtracks Mm. of some of the things that we would be, that we usually speak about. So if they're things that include a sort of soundtrack, which I don't think any has done this time well what would you what would you include what what sort of music would you forage to chris oh that's a very good question i think maybe dvorak oh okay i was going to say the theme to um ground force oh yeah very brassy <laughs> yeah and, and and i'm going to create because i have the playlist there for like particular types of tea so there's a chamomile for kind of relaxed vibes there's iced tea for kind of yep. cool chilled vibes no. there's strong brew which is for more intense scores and i think i might have to create an extra one that'll be like a really strong brew that i'll name after that japanese tea that is really high in caffeine <laughs> that'll be like really intense yeah other than that make sure that if you're looking for uh father's day just around the corner, just a couple of days away. If you're listening to this upon release and looking for a gift for your old pop pop, for old daddy, um, then um, you can head to our Board Game Geek page mm-hmm. where we have a curated um, section yep. which features all the games that we've um, ever spoke about on this show. And the same with Steam as well. We have a curated page on there which features all the video games that we've ever spoke about on this show. The good thing 
about the Steam one and getting a digital gift is if you're leaving it this late until Father's Day, yes, you could just immediately go and get it. You exactly. just immediately, and it looks like you'd planned in advance. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's well worth it. I'm laying hints for my son to get me something off my Steam wish list, but it's falling on deaf ears. Yeah. Does he call so, you Pop Pop? Yeah, what does he call you? He certainly doesn't. Uh, it just calls me Daddy, even though he's going through a stage at the minute where he just calls me Dad, and it sounds really weird. It's like, Dad! I'm like, hmm, that... And if he's if he's really not frustrated, yeah, but he sometimes calls me by my name as well, which is even worse. He's like, Sam! <laughs> so <I was> like... <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it just sounds it just sounds if he really wants my attention, he'll use my my real my real name. My real name. He'll use wow. my he'll use my name. Well as opposed to your code name. Well but dad is kind of a code name, isn't it? Code name dad. Code name dad. Secret agent dad. Anyway. That'll do. 